you are our shepherd. And as Psalm 23 says, when we follow you and we are with you, our soul lacks nothing because we were made for you. And you lead us beside still waters. You make us lie down in green pastures, pastures that hungry sheep eat from. We're satisfied in you. And God, there's so many times that I've looked to people to affirm me. I've looked to things to satisfy me. I've looked to certain powers and influences to protect me. And I end up hungry again, unsatisfied again. Because I'm not made for those things. You are my creator and I'm made for you. And so, Lord, here... May we learn as your people to just rest in relationship with you. Knowing that even before the circumstances have been worked out, the the wrinkles ironed out, um, the problems solved, that you, you are with us and you are teaching us what it means just to rest in you. And that's the beautiful thing, God, is as we worship you, as we give our praise to you, That's where we find our joy, because that's what we're made for. You're the only relationship like that in our lives, where we glorify you and we share in your joy at the same time. So God, um, settle us in you. May your peace, which surpasses understanding, guard each heart and mind in here. And as we open your word, may you continue to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. I like feedback. I like feedback. Well, good morning, everybody. Man, uh, we only have two weeks left, believe it or not, in uh, this book, this fascinating book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Next week, we're going to put an exclamation point on the end of this series. Um, But I am really pumped uh, um, about what... What Ecclesiastes has to teach us today, um, it's something that I think is, is so, so needed for us to understand um, and learn in, in the midst of this time and place in history. Um, before I get in there, I, I do want to tell you about a true story about a man who likely saved the world by doing nothing, by doing nothing. About 40 years ago, on September 26, 1983, a military officer under the Soviet Union named Stanislav Petrov was working an overnight shift. And at this point, 1983, September, was, was really a height during the Cold War. Tensions were, were strong between the U.S. and Russia, always anxious of potential nuclear attack. And it didn't help matters much that on September 1st of 1983, the Soviets shot down a Korean commercial airline that had crossed into their airspace and had 269 people on board, including a U.S. congressman. So things were tense. Well, Petrov was a lieutenant colonel, put his face up there, in the Soviet Union's um, air defense forces. His job was to monitor his country's satellite system for any potential nuclear weapons headed their way. And as, after working several hours in the overnight shift, in the early morning hours, his computer system started 
going off. The alarm started going, indicating that there were five nuclear-armed intercontinental ballistic missiles that had just been launched from, a, from an American base. Now, what do you think is going through his mind in this moment? Oh, boy. You know, this is what they train these guys for. And he knows that he has about 20 minutes that these missiles could reach Russia. So he had to act fast. And he was trained, once that alarm goes off, to report it to his superiors. But instead, Petrov just stared at the screen. And he had a phone in this hand. He was trying to take in all the information he could. Because as he stared at this computer screen, something just wasn't adding up to him. Like he was comparing it with his training. He had what he was seeing, comparing it with what he knew was correct, and something felt off. But can you imagine how anxious that environment felt? In that moment, he also knew that if he did report it to his superiors, that there would be a, a, a quick retaliation. And what might that do to millions in the U.S.? And so he's studying, he's looking at it. And after 30 seconds, a minute, three minutes, five minutes, he, he's still staring at the screen and he makes a decision to not report what he's seeing because he thinks it's a computer error. Well, 20 minutes after that, he finds out he's right because <laughs> nothing happened. But like talk about tense in that moment. Like what would have happened if Lieutenant Petrov had just absorbed the anxiety that everybody else felt in the room and just reacted. I don't know, but it wouldn't have been good. And later, his superiors actually reprimanded him for not reporting it, but he stood by his lack of action. And he said later, he said, we are wiser than computers. This is not a message, anti-computer message. I, I promise that. But, but I have a point. I'm going here in a second. But Hollywood did make a docudrama in, in 2015 about his life. Maybe some of you have seen it, starring the Kevin Costner. Um, but this story gets all of us, right? Because it's an example of someone who, even in, when everybody around him was in fear and anxiety, he was able to look through all of that to see where wisdom was. And this is a modern-day example of a short story we're going to read in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, one thing that we've noticed about Ecclesiastes this last number of weeks is that, it, that it, he's consistently guiding us, helping us to, to look past all the fog of life, to, to, to listen past all the noise in order to find what really matters, what has true meaning in our lives. And, and in this story we're going to have today, he, he's, he's really helping us to see past the, the noise, the sensationalism, the anxiety that pervades so much of life so that we can ask, how do we find wisdom? And as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, how do we, instead of just becoming sponges of anxiety around us, how do we listen for and learn to follow the wise, humble way of Jesus? And in my opinion, this is one of the most important questions we could be asking as Christ followers in the 21st century. Because we live in an anxious world. And so 
Ecclesiastes 9, 13 to 18 goes right at these questions. If you'll turn there with me. Uh, if you want to open your blue Bibles in front of you, we're on page 545. We're going to look at this short story together asking, how can we find wisdom while living in an anxious world? Ecclesiastes 9, starting at verse 13. And he said, I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man, poor but wise. And he saved the city by his wisdom. But no, nobody remembered the poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are no longer heeded. And the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded than the shouts of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Lord, as we open your word today, We we live in a challenging time, in an anxious time, fearful. So many people are angry. Oftentimes, I'm not even aware of how I have absorbed a lot of that God. But Lord, when I look at the way of Jesus and I look at who Jesus was, I realize he, he lived such a different kind of life than I do. Show us how to be like Jesus. How to see the way of wisdom, even in an anxious age. And may the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in whom we trust. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. So, so similar to the story of Petrov, Ecclesiastes tells us a story of, of a lowly man in an overwhelming situation. But instead of taking on everybody else's anxiety because a powerful king was coming against them, he sought the way of wisdom and he saved his city. And when I read stories like that, I don't know about you, I'm thinking, man, how did he do it? Like, how do you face such alarming, overwhelming weights of insecurity, unease, fear, and yet still see the wise way. I want wisdom like that, don't you? Because it's so easy just to become an anxiety sponge instead of, a, instead of one who actually works for society's good. But before we talk about how to discover and follow the wise way, I first want to pause and stop and talk about this culture we're actually living in now. We need to understand the ocean we're swimming in before we can actually understand how to respond in it. You know, we're not living in the Cold War, thankfully, right? We're, we're, we're also, we don't have a powerful king laying siege to our towns, thankfully. But there still is plenty of anxiety to go around in our society. Why? What are the unique challenges that we are facing as human beings in the 21st century? You see, as our world changes and grows increasingly complex, anxiety has become normal. Some might say, as I'll show in a minute, that anxiety 
is actually one of the main characteristics of our age. When I refer to anxiety today, to be clear, I'm not talking about like, the, the individual uh, mental health challenge uh, that some people have, like that diagnosis of anxiety. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more just the, the overall feeling of unease, worry, fear, uh, that somewhat pervades an entire culture. And there's a, a since past, but a late rabbi and family therapist, a guy named Edwin Friedman, who wrote a book that I would highly recommend if you're a leader or if you just want to understand our culture better. He wrote this book called The Failure of Nerve. And in it, he makes a case that anxiety has become a dominant characteristic of our cultural moment. That in general, American society, just we live and exist in a state of worry, unease, instability, insecurity. I mean, do you ever feel that in the midst of, we, we all live in this world, do you ever get a sense of that? But where does that come from? Well, I think there really are three dominant factors. I know there are many different factors, but I see three big reasons why it has become so prevalent more today than in the past. And first, we live in a time of rapid change. Technology alone change. You know, technological development throughout history has always changed how we work, how we relate to other people, and even how we see ourselves. But, but t- the rate of technological development in the last 20 years is on an exponential tear. I mean, just think about your own life and where we were 25, 30 years ago versus where we are today. I called my first girlfriend on a rotodial phone. Like, some of you are like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. But like, now we can't imagine life without our phones. And forget phones. We're talking about the metaverse now. AI technology. And it's just coming at us before we've even had time to stop and think, how will this affect our work, our relationships, how we see ourselves? I'm sorry, we don't have time for that. Once we get used to a new normal, another normal is coming. Before we can even, even assess, like, is this good for us? And so this pace of change just has a lot of us just feeling somewhat tissy. But with this rapid change also comes, number two, a constant access to information and platforms. I mean, does anybody else here, I know it's normal, but does anybody else here think it's crazy that we can find out about the war in Ukraine, a mass shooting in Philadelphia, and the score of the Celtics game all within seconds in the palm of our hands? And with every global event that's happening, like they all have different relevance for our lives that we haven't fully worked out yet, and they all have different emotional reactions that are appropriate when we read about them, but we don't have time to feel those because there's more information coming at us. And with the prevalence of constant information also means that anyone with a keyboard now has a voice. Most societies throughout human history, it was the the leaders. It was the few influential people in position who had a voice, a real voice. But now all you need is a keyboard, a username, and a password. And you get to say something. 
And I know like, there are some good things about that, right? It's, it's empowered people who wouldn't normally have voices, but it sure has created a whole lot of noise, too. And we're not always sure what to, what to make sense of it. And with all the rapid change and all the voices, number three, we now have a complexity of religious and moral frameworks always in front of us. You know, generally accepted standards... When a lot of times in the history of our society, most of society shared an, an understanding of what was right, what was wrong, what was true, what was false. You didn't have to agree on everything, but there was at least a general commonality, but not so today. Today, it, that, all of that has been exchanged because I, the individual, get to determine based on what I think or what I feel, what is right or what is true. It's like as a society, we're all trying to find our way through the world but now we have dozens of different compasses that people tell us we can use. And, and, and which one do we use? And by the way, no, no, no. They don't all lead to the same place. No matter what different religions may tell you. So who's right? Who's wrong? What's true? And all of a sudden, our foundation starts to feel a little bit shaky. And so in this environment of rapid change, overwhelming information, and growing complexity, can we see why... Like, Anxiety grows pretty well <laughs> as we're unable to process all that's coming at us, all that's changing. And if a lot of people around us are unsure just even what's true, like the ground starts to feel shaky, that like the people in that, in that small town, they're surrounded by forces larger than them. They're overwhelmed. They're worried. They're uncertain of their future. And add to that some of the events that have just happened over these last few years. I mean, we, like, we felt under siege for a while by a virus that kept us in our homes and we were afraid to come out. What's happening to the economy? What's the future of democracy? What about public safety? All questions that rattle through our minds even in an hour. So is it fair to say that anxiety is the dominant characteristic in our day? I think so. I think so. But what does that do to us? What does that now, how does that change and shape us? That as anxiety grows, we become people who emotionally react instead of wisely respond. That anxiety with its, with its cousins of fear, anger, insecurity don't often show us the best way. They tend to cloud our ability to think straight. That anxiety leads us to see, feel, react, not think. And the more anxiety that exists in an atmosphere, the easier it is for, for politicians or powerful leaders to pander to our fear and bypass our minds. And when we are worried and insecure, we naturally then look to herd together for, for people of a common tribe with a common fear to fight a common enemy because we, we, we need to somehow replace that feeling of insecurity. And this isn't just what we do in politics, guys. And it's just not just what the right does. It's not just what the left does. It's what we do as a human natural reaction to try to find some sense of protection. You guys okay so far? I know I'm throwing a lot at you this morning, but I... I I'm trying to give a cultural analysis in about 10 minutes, so it's probably not fair to you. But 
When we feel that anxiety, we got to look to something or someone to protect us or give us hope. Ancient cities would build big, thick walls called strongholds, and they would put faith in their leaders or their gods. But today, it's a lot of looking to the state. It's our political gods. It's our looking for the influential leaders, our party, our organization, our brand, whatever it is that will give us hope and will save us. And yes, followers of Jesus can get sucked into the gravity of anxiety too. And what's hard, because I've heard from so many, is that they, they realize Christianity was the, the dominant religious framework, moral framework in our country for a long time. But now I've heard from a lot of Christians who are like, it feels like Christianity is under siege in our nation, and we're scared. Like, what's going to happen to the church? What's going to happen to the coming generations? What's going to happen to our nation? And those concerns are real, and I see where they're coming from. But my question is, what are we going to do with them? Are we going to react in anxiety or look for the wise way? Because amidst all the change, the voices, the growing complexities, what do we know? When we feel that anxiety, it's so easy to forget or lose sight of this. But what is also reality? That a lowly but wise man came into our loud, anxious world to save us. Now, when we read the Old Testament, including Ecclesiastes, there will be moments when we're reading it and we're thinking, oh, like, I think that's talking about Jesus. Or, oh, that, that's a picture of Jesus. And we should because the Old Testament itself is meant to point us to Jesus. And when I read this, I read Ecclesiastes 9, who is it that saves the city? A low status but exceedingly wise man whom many ignored. Now, who does that sound like to you? That's a picture of Jesus. Because our Savior, full of wisdom, came into our world full of anxiety. And he was born into poverty. I mean, if it wasn't for the angels' announcements to the shepherds or the, or the star up in the sky for the magi, would anybody have noticed this baby born to a Jewish peasant woman laid in a manger in Bethlehem? No. Easily overlooked. And when he grew up, he grew up not at the best schools. He didn't grow up in privilege. He didn't grow up like rubbing shoulders with powerful people, yet, Scripture says, he grew in wisdom because the grace of God was on him. And we see again that this man Jesus, he, after his baptism, went about proclaiming the arrival of God's kingdom, meaning God was coming to make all things right again. Yet he did not wear a crown, nor did any royal mark distinguish him. Yet he was a man marked by wisdom. That when the storm on the Sea of Galilee nearly overwhelmed the anxious disciples' boats, oh, Jesus said, peace be still. And it was. When there was a, a demon-possessed boy who was throwing himself into a fire, the disciples couldn't do, figure out what to do. His dad couldn't figure out what to do. The crowds were starting to gather and yelling and getting frantic and anxious. Jesus shows up and he casts it out, heals the boy, and he now he uses it as a teaching moment about faith. <laughs> when there were thousands of people watching Jesus, 
four, six, some say maybe even 10,000 people who were all hungry. And the disciples were like, we don't got anything to feed them. Jesus was like, I got this. <laughs> and in a time when, when Israel was a political powder keg, because Roman occupying forces were there, and there were a lot of Roman-hating Jewish zealots around as well. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and said, should we pay taxes? You see the trick there? But Jesus, not thrown off, says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. You see, Jesus never got frantic. He never lost his mind, but in perfect unity with his Father, he was able to see through the fear, hear past the noise, to see the way of salvation. And although many rejected and despised him, Jesus made the way of salvation for us, all of us. You know, what's interesting is that Rome, in Jesus' day, they promised salvation too. Julius Caesar proclaimed himself as a son of a God and savior for the Roman world. What did he promise to save them from? Really, anxiety. Anxiety, the lack of control. How? Through his vast military power, political strength, intimidation. But now, where is Caesar? What became of his wisdom? Well, Jesus also promised salvation as the Son of God. But in his way, he went the way of a Roman cross to die as one despised and rejected by all mankind. And he came not just to save us from anxiety, but to save us from the sin that separated us from God. So he suffered in our place to make peace between us and God. How? Not with military strength, human power, but by the grace of God and the matchless love of God for us. And now, where is he? He's alive. He rose from that grave. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is the one who says, I am, I, or he says, I was, I am, and I always will be. And see, here's the thing, guys, that despite the rapid change, the loud voices around us, the growing complexity of our world, his wisdom never fails. Never. I want you to say that after me. His wisdom never fails. That's a few of you. His wisdom never fails. Sometimes we've got to tell ourselves that. Right, Because although he was despised and rejected, his wisdom, his way proves better than any human strength or power. And now today, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about him. We're still preaching Christ crucified, which Paul said may sound crazy to Totally kidding. I'm just going to use this. Is that okay? All right. But 2,000 years later, we see that just as the cross at first seemed crazy to the Jews and the Greeks, to all those God has called, they realize it is the power and the wisdom of God. So in our world, Instead of just absorbing the anxiety around us, how can we learn to follow Jesus' way? 
And if we're feeling anxious or overwhelmed by the noise, how can we even in that moment learn to listen? Because in this loud, anxious world, we can learn. The key word there is learn. We're not going to be perfect at it right away, but we can learn to follow the quiet, calm wisdom of our Savior. Ecclesiastes concludes, the quiet words of the wise are more to be heeded, meaning not just listened to, but obeyed, than all the shouts of the ruler of fools. There's a lot of shouting going on today, isn't there? There's a whole lot of shouting. But shouting is often just a byproduct of anxiety, not God. And if you're looking for wisdom, oftentimes you won't find it amidst the shouting. (laughs) You're going to find it by stepping away and actually seeking God and hearing Him in the quiet. But how do we learn to listen? I think the New Testament book of James gives us valuable direction here. And at first, James shows us that in an anxious environment, ask first for his wisdom in prayer. Now, that might seem counter, it might seem like, no duh, right? Yeah, I got to ask God. I got to pray about it. Like, isn't that the answer to everything? But the reason why we got to say it, because, because we don't do it. Often our first reaction, again, is to see, feel, react, not ask. So that's why James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Do you realize that God wants to give you wisdom more than we even want it? So ask. And I'm encouraged by this, too, to not just ask once, but keep asking. Ask multiple times a day if we need to until asking God for wisdom becomes the the natural habit or reflex whenever we begin to feel that sense of unease and insecurity so that we learn to go to him instead of reacting. That God has called his church in the 21st century to be a non-anxious presence in our society. But we can't do that. I'm convicted by this. We can't do that until prayer becomes our natural reflex in anxious times. He wants us to ask. But as we ask, then we learn to listen for God's answer. James adds, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to type, slow to text, slow to post, slow to yell. It's like... like, Slow to become angry or react. You know, the thing that, that is impressive to me about Lieutenant Petrov is that, again, he didn't just react, he just looked. He looked at that screen and just tried to take in information for a while. Why? Because he was trying to compare what he was experiencing with what he knew to be correct about that system and about reality. And by looking at what was in front of him and comparing it to what he knew to be true, he found the path of wisdom in that. Well, for us as Christians, when we run against difficult situations at work, at home, with various relationships, finances, how can we learn to filter through the noise and the anxiety to see what's the wise way? Well, we got to know what the qualities of God's wisdom are, right? And so James tells us, James 3.17, he says, these are the qualities of godly wisdom that we learn to recognize. 
First, it's pure. Does this decision violate your conscience or is your conscience clear? Is peace loving? Are we working for peace as far as it depends on us? It can, it's considerate. It's thinking about everybody involved, not just ourselves. It's submissive to God, surrendered to God, or one translation says open to reason. It's full of mercy instead of just trying to take it out on those we feel like are our enemies. Full of good fruit, meaning we want to work toward that which actually brings about change, not just the appearance of it. It's impartial, meaning you don't show up to a situation already having prejudged everybody. And it's sincere, free from hypocrisy. Man, that's a great list to memorize, don't you think? That anytime we butt up against a situation and we ask God for wisdom, we go to that list and we say, God, like what way can, can, carries these qualities to it? But one thing that I found is if we are going to learn to listen well, that means that we are going to mark out time and space where we do shut off the noise for a moment. We put our phones on do not disturb. We turn off the TV. We just set apart time where we can be quiet and hear what God is saying. And as we learn to ask, then listen. That's good, but it doesn't do much good unless we follow what God says. And James adds, do not merely listen, but but do what God says. Yes, there will be times when we do what God says. We go the wise way and people don't understand it. Reprimand us for it. Despise us or reject us because we haven't joined the anxious tribe like everybody else. Or if we're not pointing fingers at their enemies, they start thinking that we're against them. Still, Ecclesiastes says wisdom is the better way. It's the wise way because after all, one sinner, which that, you, could, you could translate that as one person who misses the mark can end up doing a whole lot of damage. Imagine what Petrov could have done. <laughs> whole lot of damage, but one man in the way of wisdom. No matter who you are, where you come from, what your status, station, education, one person in the way of wisdom. Imagine what that can do. Think about what Jesus did for us. So in this loud, anxious world, the quiet, calm voice of our Savior says, follow me. And the thing that strikes me is, you know, I've often thought about what it might be like to live in other time periods in history. And sometimes I daydream about it because I think, ah, oh, man, wouldn't it be nice Yes, we have all these comforts and conveniences of this time, but man, wouldn't it be nice to live in a more stable time, a little bit more of a comfortable time? All the pressures, challenges that are facing us as followers of Christ today and all these things coming at us, wouldn't that be better? But God is starting to show me, actually, it's the pressure, it's the rapid change that causes us to lean in and grow. Because comfort often lulls us back to sleep. But it's because we're going through a challenging time that actually God can use this to grow us. That instead of becoming people who see, feel, react, we become people who learn in time to ask, to listen, and to follow. 
And it's not going to be perfect at first. If you ask and you don't hear something or you're not really sure what you hear or, or you're not you're confident you can listen or you ask and listen and you hear something you don't like. And like, like keep going, though. Don't give up in this way because we are students of Jesus learning to follow his way. We're not going to get it perfect right away. We are not. But keep going. Ask. Listen. Follow. And the promise of God is this to us. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, that in all things, at all times, all times includes right now, he will abundantly bless us with all we need so that we can abound in every good work. So that we can become the kind of community that seeks purity. Let me get that verse back up there. That seeks purity and wants to consider others more than ourselves, who wants to ultimately find ways to be impartial and sincere, that wants to work for true change, not just the appearance of it, who shows mercy even when we're angry and pursues peace as far as it depends on us. I mean, that kind of community, that stands out in our society. And even if we receive flack for it, we keep asking, we keep listening, we keep following, because there will be people in the midst of it all who says, man, like, like what is this, this non-anxious presence that seems to, to reside among you? And we say, that's the presence of Jesus. That's the presence of Jesus. And we can point them to the God we know. In this loud, anxious world, the quiet, calm voice of our Savior says, Follow me.